another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I am Amy Quackenboss, ABI's Deputy Executive Director. Bankruptcy filings for oil and gas companies have increased dramatically since 2008. These cases present unique issues and have far-reaching effects. With me today to discuss these issues and more are Deborah Williamson and Megan Bishop. Deborah is a shareholder with Cox Smith Matthews Incorporated in San Antonio and is a senior member of its bankruptcy department. She is recognized worldwide for her knowledge of bankruptcy and creditors' rights issues, and she has particular experience in the energy industry. Ms. Williamson is a past president of ABI and was the recipient of the American Bankruptcy Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011. Megan is also an attorney with Cox Smith Matthews Incorporated in San Antonio, where she assists clients with matters related to creditors' rights and bankruptcy. With a background in energy and national resources law, particularly focusing on the oil and gas industry, she has experience handling bankruptcy matters for exploration and production companies and other energy industry clients. Welcome, ladies, and thank you for joining me on this podcast. Thank you, Amy. We appreciate it. Deborah and Megan co-authored ABI's newest publication, When Gushers Go Dry, The Essentials of Oil and Gas Bankruptcy. Today we're going to be talking about some of the unique issues that face oil and gas companies when they file bankruptcy. Deborah, you mentioned in the new book that the oil and gas industry is vulnerable to unique factors ranging from global credit markets to domestic and foreign geopolitical events and even to population growth and weather. Can you give examples of what you mean by this? As a starting point, we need to remember that oil and natural gas are commodities. And so they are, by their very nature, vulnerable to many of the same variables as other commodities, gold, silver, grain, pork bellies. Oil, though, in particular, is priced on a global market. Natural gas, however, tends to be priced more on a a regional market. And then you tie that to oil and natural gas to a lesser degree is also tied to the economic cycle. So oil and natural gas demand waxes and wanes with the growth in the economy. Beyond the simple price volatility that we've been seeing, you're also seeing historic delinking in the prices of oil versus natural gas. Traditionally, there was a very close parallel between a price of oil going up and the price of natural gas going up. That is now no longer the case. Today, it is not unusual for E&P companies to have a strategy which focuses on oil or natural gas. Companies which are long on gas are experiencing significant pricing restrictions because of the contraction of the pricing of of natural gas. Companies which are heavy in oil have more pricing volatility, and they have to deal with that in their financing. A recent report indicated that a number of money managers are betting that oil prices will go up and natural, natural gas prices will go down. It makes it difficult for companies that are in both to do long-term planning and for companies that have gambled on oil or gambled on natural gas to develop a long-range plan in today's short-term environment. And Megan, according to bankruptcydata.com, there have been 62 oil and gas company bankruptcy filings since 2008. That is a 170% increase from the period covering 2002 to 2007. Why are we seeing such a dramatic increase in oil and gas bankruptcy filings? Well, outside of the normal price volatility that Deborah just talked about, uh, the recent history with regard to oil and gas prices has been, in, in particular, very volatile. 2008, we saw, was uh, very much a boom year. We had crude oil and natural gas prices reaching record levels. 
Um, oil in July of 2008 reached more than $147 a barrel, and gas hit more than $13.68 at its peak, which was also in July of 2008. And so when you have pricing like this, this resulted in a frenzy of production. And so um, oil rigs at that time were at their peak, their, their highest count in 22 years. In September of 2008, for example, they were at 2,031 rigs, uh, active rigs uh, nationwide. And so right after you had this huge boom, we saw that was followed by a rapid decline in oil and natural gas prices, which was unprecedented. Uh, by December of 2008, the price of a barrel of crude was hitting at less than $40 a barrel. And uh, on the natural gas market, wellhead prices had fallen by over 50% from their July peak to an average of under six, uh, $6 in MCF. So this rapid shift in oil and gas prices was the primary factor driving most of those oil and gas bankruptcies. And of course, there's a ripple effect there too. When there is less drilling, there's less activity, and that affects um, companies like oil and gas service providers as well. Uh, you know, to add to that uncertainty, in particular in the natural gas market, the ability to produce natural gas from shale has had a ripple effect in, in other sort of um, ancillary markets. So we're no longer talking about uh, building plants to import natural gas and the discussion center around the export of natural gas. Uh, on the Gulf Coast, for example, uh, we have hundreds of millions of dollars that are being spent on chemical plants due solely to ready availability of natural gas and, and the byproducts of natural gas. And so uh, the volume of the availability of the product means lower prices, and lower prices mean financial pressure on companies that produce natural gas. So these unique factors have increased the number of, of bankruptcy filings. Um, once an oil and gas company files for bankruptcy, um, Deborah, what makes it so unique and different from a typical commercial bankruptcy filing? Well, part of it goes back, you sound like we're saying the same thing over again, it's volatility. Uh, Megan and I were involved in an EMP, which means exploration and production company, that in 2009 was hit very hard by the decrease in oil and gas pricing that Megan just referenced to the point where they were violating bank covenants and we ended up having to put them into bankruptcy to see if we could do an orderly sale process. Less than eight months late, and we were thinking at that time, hoping at that time, that we could deliver maybe a 10 cent on the dollar recovery to unsecured creditors. We happen to have leases in an area now known as the Eagleford. In the eight months from the time we filed bankruptcy to January of 2010, that became one of the hottest oil and gas plays in the country. The end result was we sold the, most of those assets, paid the unsecured creditors 100 cents on the dollar, plus interest, plus attorney's fees. That shift in pricing, whether it's going up or going down, is certainly different from any other type of, of case that I've ever dealt with before. Other differences are the amount of cash that you have to have. In today's drilling environment, to drill uh, in a shell play or to do uh, horizontal drilling, which means you go down and then you go, you go down vertically and then you go horizontally, takes millions of dollars per well. And trying to explain to a court why a company that might have been losing money needs to continue to spend money to drill and hold leases is, is sometimes an interesting experiment. And, and it involves a lot of Trust me, Judge, we really do have to drill these wells, and we really do have to spend this money. 
So, so you have different, I mean, definitely different factors influence, influencing the um, course of a case. Um, who are some of the different players or major players in an ENP bankruptcy that you may not see in a typical commercial Chapter 11? Well, there are a lot of regulators. The, um, every state has a different regulatory scheme for oil and gas properties. So you will have whatever the industry regulator is. You will often have a type of environmental regulator. You will have, and so you've got the regulators that are often in the case. There are requirements as to what needs to be filed with each regulator. Once again, those requirements vary from state to state, and they're constantly changing. In 2010, there was no requirement, for example, in Texas that a company actually file with the state the formula that it uses to inject fluids into the ground, the fracking we've been hearing so much about. That's changed, and sometimes company in difficulty may not pay as much attention as they should to the, to the regulatory and the filing requirements. Other players that you see are, are very experienced service providers. This is whatever stage of the oil and gas industry you're in, a boom or a bust, it is not the first rodeo for these guys. They've been involved in, in oil and gas industries and in oil and gas bankruptcy since at least the 80s. And unlike a lot of the financial institutions, they've kept their people. So we have very experienced credit managers, very experienced workout officers uh, on, the, on the oil and gas service provider side. They are aggressively asserting their mechanics liens under, under applicable law. They are aggressively fighting the lending institutions, the banks, over who liens have priority. And, and it sometimes, as debtors counsel, you may almost feel like you're on the sideline watching the service providers and the banks fight it out. Uh, besides the, th those players, you often see um, the banks are different and the lenders are different. There seems, still seems to be in some days kind of a romance to oil and gas, and you will find lenders, both traditional and non-traditional lenders, in the oil and gas case that are very sensitive to pricing. You, you're seeing your paper trade quite frequently. And then on top of that, like any other commodity cases, you're dealing with issues relating to hedges, uh, forward contracts, and things of that type, which can make things even more complicated than in a traditional bank. Sounds like the the addition of um, all these unique players might add a little, uh, uh, a lot more uh, litigation and um, a lot more adversity into the case. Well, there is, I, I didn't even mention, on top of everything else, you're dealing with landlords. You're dealing with the people that own the property. And many of them care passionately about who is drilling on their property, who, who is walking onto their property. And, and, you're, and each lease may have multiple, either landowners or mineral owners in it, which, again, makes things much more complicated because each lease is different. Each lease may have different owners. And each lease may have different restrictions. Well, and you and you do a nice job in the book of introducing um, the basic oil and gas concepts, including um, the oil and gas lease. And you know, you, you discuss how that's a unique instrument. Why is that so different from a lease of real property that can be assumed or rejected in a Chapter 11 case, Megan? Um, and maybe you can briefly describe the different approaches the courts use when analyzing oil and gas leases. Sure. I mean, the oil and gas lease, from a fundamental standpoint, is different from other leases, really just because of the nature of the earth. And rather than dividing the earth up on um, from the surface in, in a horizontal way, we're starting 
to divide up the earth vertically and then within those vertically sections vertical sections we're again dividing it up horizontally and so that's where the the complication arises and real property law it's not the fastest moving body of law, and it really was based on a time when all we had were horizontal divisions of surface property. So um, bankruptcy law, as we all know, is federal, but the code gives such deference to, um, to state law, especially in matters of real estate. And so we have to start at what the state real property law is. And, and whether an oil and gas lease is a true lease or whether it is a contract or whether it's an executory contract uh, or whether it's a fee simple determinable like it is in Texas all depends on uh, the state in which the property is located. So um, that analysis is going to determine whether or not an oil and gas lease can be assumed or rejected under Section 365 of the code. And that really turns on two things, whether the lease is an unexpired lease of non-residential real property or an executory contract. And that, uh, like I said before, is dependent on state law. In Texas, for example, the law is very clear. And Texas is really an example of one of those states on one end of the spectrum, which is that 365 doesn't apply. It's not going to be an unexpired lease, and it's not going to be an executory contract uh, because um, in Texas, oil and gas leases are defeasible fee interests. And so they don't fall under that definition. Uh, Oklahoma, although in Oklahoma the the nature of real property is slightly different than it is in um, in Texas with regard to oil and gas leases. Oklahoma courts are still pretty clear in saying that that uh, Section 365 is not going to apply to oil and gas leases in Oklahoma. Then then we sort of go to the other end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have states like Kansas and Ohio, in which those state courts have said that uh, oil and gas leases really are leases. And so when bankruptcy courts go to look to Kansas and Ohio state law and apply those principles in a bankruptcy context, those those do tend to be considered uh, unexpired leases or executory contracts. Um, and my favorite example in the middle is uh, is Louisiana, which is where I went to law school. Um, and you could write an entire book on whether Louisiana oil and gas leases are executory contracts or not. The courts are, are in very strong disagreement about that, and it's very unclear as to what the nature of that oil and gas lease is from a real property standpoint, which therefore makes it very difficult to determine whether or not it is a, a contract that can be assumed or rejected. Or, or better yet, must be assumed or rejected. Must be assumed or rejected. Right. 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 That's fascinating that there's such a, a, a diverse treatment of um, you know something that's probably very similar um, and and not necessarily a form contract, but something that's very similar across the states. Well, the other thing that's interesting about leases is that is that the way you hold a lease, and Megan can talk more about that, is often by con- by continuing to drill. So if you've drilled, you might have earned part of the lease, but if you don't continue to drill, you'll lose the rest of the lease, which can make it interesting for your creditors who may or may not have liens on the property that you you may not be able to retain. Right. So it, it does sounds like there's no certainty when you enter into a bankruptcy what's going to happen with an oil and gas lease. That's right. And, and it's difficult too. Part of, you know, part of what's underlying all of this is the way that a lot of these deals are done, which still, even today, in a large part, are done on handshakes and um, letter agreements. So sometimes it's really difficult to even figure out who owns the lease because 
the assignments either are, aren't given or they're given but they're not recorded. Um, and when you complicate that with being able to or I say sort of chop up the land um, again in all of these different planes, it makes it very complicated to figure out who owns what piece of property. I bet. It sounds like there are just so many moving parts in an oil and gas bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, in, in a typical Chapter 11 case, the debtor files several first-day motions um, to deal with the administration of the case and address emergency matters. Um, for example, critical vendor motions, cash collateral motions, and even asset sale motions. What are some of the unique first-day motions that you see in uh, oil and gas cases? Probably the most unique, and, and it's an area, unsettled area of the law, is the authority to go in and make royalty payments to the owners of the mineral interest. The way royalty payments normally work is that they are paid in arrears, and the timing is different whether it's a gas payment or an oil payment. And and But a number of the leases, but not all of them, that's what makes it complicated, provide that that if you don't make the royalty payment timely, then the lease is subject to being forfeited, which is a little bit different from a, a traditional critical vendor issue. However, parties that have liens on the oil and gas property may not want you to make those royalty payments, and there's often a fight on that issue uh, whether or not they can be made. And that's a little, it's a little different, particularly for people that are not experienced in oil and gas to, fight, to figure out why you're having to make these payments. So that's one fight you, you have up front and you have early. You often have issues with regard to paying uh, certain kinds of taxes. Like I said, this is a very regulated industry, and there are a number of, of taxes that are due uh, as a result of the severing of the minerals from the, the, the leases, and those are often paid in arrears as well. And you want to pay, make those paid timely so you don't have to deal with the regulatory authority. So those are two of the bigger ones that you're, you've, you're faced with. The third one is, is, is the issue you said of cash collateral, and that goes into who's got a lien on what property and whose cash collateral is being used. Uh, is it, do the mineral lien, do the uh, people who provided services, do they have mechanics and material men's liens that, that, are, that trump maybe the banks? Have the banks perfected their lien and all the leases? And so cash collateral motions early in the case or we can talk about later, dip financing can be a very complex area when you're trying to trying to explain to the court and parties in interest who, who is being affected adversely and who's not. So are you having to do full, um, full all-out lien analysis first thing in the case? And you, you do it pretty early. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you do the, fir the first one you do is you look at the bank's liens because right. a lot of financial institutions, they may have after-acquired property clauses in their documents, but they haven't Maybe the descriptions, we had a case where the description didn't match. The, the after-acquired property clause didn't cover newly acquired leases, and we took the position they did not have a lien on leases that were acquired after their, after their deeds of trust were recorded. Then you, uh, and as Megan, you might want to talk about priorities between lien right. holders, because sometimes you have to look at that at the beginning of the case, and sometimes you try to push it off till you see what you're really fighting about. Right. Yeah, and if I remember in that case, that case too, um, just expanding on what Deborah just said is the question arose whether or not the first lien holder, they may have had a lien on an oil and gas lease, but only to a certain horizon. And if new drilling was done after the fact and the after acquired property was below that horizon, which was the sort of the floor of where that first lien holder's lien ended, the argument was they didn't have a lien on anything that was drilled deeper than, you know, X number of feet because it just didn't capture that, the property description just didn't capture that land. 
That's interesting. Um, and I know, I mean, we've talked a little bit about mi mineral liens and cash collateral and royalties. Are there any other, and you do a good job in the book of laying out kind of the unique issues, but are there any other um, unique issues that you think you'd want to point out to our listeners um, that uh, are unique to oil and gas cases? Sure. I think um, the biggest one really, I think, is the mineral lien issue because they become such large players in the dynamic of the case as it goes forward. Um, there also are some title issues that, uh, I mean, title issues in the oil and gas context are always difficult, and then you make it more complicated once a bankruptcy is filed. And, and again, going back to what I said earlier, part of this is the nature of the way many oil and gas transactions are papered. And so you'll have... Um, from a lawyer's standpoint, things that aren't papered the way you would hope that they would <laughs> that they would be documented. Um, in particular, with regard, the one that pops in my head as the biggest issue is unrecorded interest owners. And so, outside of bankruptcy, an unrecorded interest owner should still be able to have his interest. Um, now, his rights relative to others may be affected, but, uh, for example, in the code, there's a conflict between Section 541D and 544A3, each of which have to do with legal versus equitable title. And so in a bankruptcy context, an unrecorded interest owner can find himself without an interest um, once that bankruptcy has been filed, and that's, that's a very difficult issue. Um, with regard to mineral liens, I think that's, that's really the – from my standpoint, one of the most key issues. And um, most oil and gas producing states have some statutory mineral lien uh, designed to protect the oil and gas field service providers uh, in the event that they're not paid for their work. And this is, these are statutes that arose out of uh, past experience where EMPs, you know, we saw a surge in EMP filings and the service providers were left without having been paid. So most, and I'm going to speak in general terms about this particular issue because it does vary by state, but most state statutes have some things in common, and, um, and sort of the basic tenets are that the oil field service provider will have a lien on the property worked on, um, they'll share pro rata with other service providers on a given lease, and most of these sta uh, statutory liens are self-executing. So they arise just by virtue of the statute, but usually you have to do something in order to give notice. And, and for example, in Texas, you have to file a lien affidavit that says sort of very basic information, your property description, uh, how much you're, you're owed, what the date is of first work who your property owner is, some of those sorts of things. And there, it's really a statute that's modeled off of the mechanics and material lien statutes that have been in existence for a long time. Um, so just by way of a couple of examples with regard to mineral liens, um, very basically, how do you file a good lien? And uh, from the service provi provider's perspective, work is usually done on a well basis. But most of these liens cover property on a lease basis. And so who owns a lease and, and actually even where the boundaries of that lease are aren't often readily known by the service provider. Um, furthermore, oil and gas service providers typically have a contract only with one entity who's usually the operator. And that operator may or may not actually own an interest in the land. And so the person with whom the service provider has the most contact may not be the person against whom he needs to file that lien. Uh, so things like researching title become an issue from the service provider's um, perspective. One of the, the most strongly um, 
and I think most creatively argued issues is when first work is performed. Some mineral lien claimants in, in cases have tried to argue that the first work on the lease should be counted as the first date they ever set foot on the lease, that the first work was ever done, uh, even if that work was paid for. And that argument obviously is, is made to try to be first in line before before the bank's liens, and that can make a really big difference to have the mineral lien claimants be first. So it sounds like it sounds like it's a fairly fact-intensive analysis, too. It's a very fact-intensive analysis. But but the other thing about it is it's also uh, there's a lot of uncertain legal principles, and, and why the date first worked issue is important in many states is that the, almost every state also provides that if one one lien creditor has a valid lien, then all lien creditors. That, that timely filed liens will, will be able to basically share yeah. peri passu with that first lien creditor. So if one can jump ahead of the bank, the argument is they can all jump ahead of the bank. So it is, it is a, it's a real struggle at times when I say we talked about cash collateral. Whose cash are we using? And then when you overlay that with the volatility in pricing, are you oversecured, are you undersecured, or do we, not, do we know that from day to day? So, again, it's more complicated. And, and that leads into my next question about debtor and possession financing in oil and gas cases. I mean, you touched on this, Deborah, but how is it different from the financing in a typical Chapter 11 case? A lot of it is, 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 is evaluation. Um, oil and gas pricing, uh, oil and gas valuation is, makes always has a set of hypothetical assumptions regarding what pricing will be in the future. So unlike with real estate where you take the income and then you take a, you know, you do a discounted cash flow off the income, in oil and gas, you're making assumptions about what the price of gas will be, what the price of oil will be, will be in the future. So arguments about what we've heard to as the price deck is something that you spend a lot of time on. And with volatility uh, that we've talked about, Price decks can can be a, sub, a matter of great debate and very you know throughout a case. And so one of the first things when you go in with dip financing is are you going to your existing lender? Are you going with a new lender? Well, if it, and that may be a function of whether or not your existing lender has a valid lien, uh, a valid first lien on all the properties or not. It may be a question: Are you going to acquire new properties or new leases with your with the cash collateral? And and so it, it is it's a little more complex or often more complex, not always, but often more complex than looking for financing for an, an ongoing business where you're trying to do an internal restructuring when you're when you've got a more organic institution that is growing and shrinking depending on how, uh, almost monthly, depending on what it drills and what kind of revenues are being generated from wells they've drilled in the past and in the future. And it, it, it can be an ugly fight, uh, and, and, and it can be sometimes harmonious, but not as often it is in other cases. It seems like it's beginning. Right. And I mean, are you seeing, I mean, it sounds like it can be um, risky as well. Um, are you seeing a lot of uh, new lenders coming in as debtor and possession financers, or are you are are um, these bankruptcies? Do the debtors stick with their existing lender, or does it just depend? I think it it, it depends, and one of it's going to be the you know what kind of tranches of debt do you have? Do you have a traditional lender, and or do you have non-traditional lender like funds? Uh, do do you have a group of your lenders that believe in in the properties? Uh, uh, do you have a group of lenders that just want nothing to do with this property, these types of properties, or this management anymore? And those are questions that are not unique to oil and gas. 
but you do seem to have lenders that are their their positions are very strong about whether or not they agree with the philosophy of management, you know, uh, on the focus on oil, the focus on gas, where they're going, what they're drilling, how much they're spending, should they stay in an area, should they leave an area. And because there's so many myriad pieces, it, it is not unusual to get differences between your lenders uh, or even tranches of lending. And sometimes you can use that to your advantage in a dip financing situation. Well, and we've been talking about the increase in EMP filing since 2008. Deborah, do you think that we're going to continue to see an increasing number of oil and gas company filings? Well, we've had a lull. We had a we had a large uh, spike, as you said, in between 2008 and 2010. There's been kind of a lull, but we're seeing the uptick, and and we do believe that there will be, which is one reason why we wanted to write the book. The companies that are long on gas um, are experiencing near significant pricing pressures and and you're hearing about some of those in the news companies that are that are offshore many of them are significantly affected by the drilling moratorium uh, you, just because you, you know the fact that you can't drill doesn't mean you're not having to pay for all your operations and then the service providers for those companies they ramp up for you know drilling 2,000 having 2,000 active rigs and all of a sudden you're down to under a thousand active rigs in some areas all of that impacts where a company is going, a number of EMP companies and, and service providers, their loans are coming up, they're on an extension, and, and we believe that you're going to see either they're going to have to have much more accommodating lenders or you're going to see a, a definite increase in energy-related bankruptcy cases. Well, we're almost out of time, but um, can you give us your thoughts, our listeners, your thought uh, into who you think would benefit most from the new oil and gas book? We spent a lot of time talking today about energy issues primarily geared toward the, the bankruptcy professional who may not be familiar with energy issues. But we also wrote the book relying quite heavily on Megan's background for the energy professional who may not be as experienced in bankruptcy and insolvency. So we hope that both audiences find it useful, um, certainly as a, you know, an introduction to bankruptcy for the oil and gas or the energy professional, an introduction to energy for the insolvency professional. Great. And we encourage our listeners to discover more about the unique, unique aspects of both the oil and gas side and the bankruptcy side of um, these oil and gas industry bankruptcies by purchasing When Gushers Go Dry from ABI's online bookstore at bookstore.abi.org. This book will also be available in Kindle format through Amazon.com and iBook format through iTunes. I really appreciate your time, Deborah and Megan. Thank you for authoring the book and sharing your insights uh, on the oil and gas industry with us today. So thanks again, Deborah and Megan, for joining us. And thank you for asking. And we, and we thank our audience for joining us for this podcast. Uh, you can hear or download over 100 ABI podcasts at news.abi.org slash podcast. From the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Amy Quackenboss. Thank you for listening and have a great day.